Bet365 sponsors our podcast and they feature over 300,000 sporting events on their betting app. It's got everything you need to bet on sport. Bet365 are offering a wide range of markets, including first, last or anytime goal scorers. And with over 45 million members, it's the world's favourite online betting company. With the Bet365 Bet Builder, you can combine match results, players to score, number of goals and more to create your own personalised bet. And if you can't watch the games live, with Bet365's Match Live feature, you can follow every moment through live graphics and text. Bet365 is the world's favourite online sport betting company. The app can be downloaded from Google Play and Apple App Store. Over 18s only, please gamble responsibly. Hi there, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's Zonal Marking Podcast, which is brought to you by The Athletic. I'm Ali Maxwell. It's great to have you listening this week. So far this season, we have tackled left-footed centre-backs. We've taken a deep dive into Premier League squad depth. Uh, and Michael Cox is on the line with me as ever today. Michael, what have we got in store this week? Well, we are talking about Milan uh, with James Horncastle, who's written a, a brilliant in-depth piece about, about Milan for the website, looking at really all aspects of their club, from the men's team to the women's team to the stadium rebuild to, yeah, pretty much everything you could want to know. The scouting system is, is very prominent in there. So, uh, yeah, we are talking about them more widely today. Great to hear you pronounce it Milan and Milan in the same answer there. <laughs> it really hasn't helped with which way I'm going on this podcast, but we've got James Horncastle with us. He says Milan, and that is how I'm going to approach things today. James, it's brilliant to be joined by yourself on the podcast once again. The piece that Michael referenced there, Inside AC Milan, Waking a Sleeping Giant, is going to be the base of what we discuss today. I'd love to hear just a bit before we tackle the topic about the process of writing such a detailed piece with so many different angles and, and voices used. Um, for example, how long does that take from idea to publishing? I mean, the access you got was incredible, but you know, it can't have happened overnight. No, I suppose the timeline for that article was maybe a couple of weeks from basically getting the green light from the club that we could uh, speak to the people that we wanted to speak to. Um, and then the interviews were kind of set up Monday to Friday, uh, one week. I think the only one that was in English was with uh, Gazidis. So that involved a lot of kind of not only transcribing, but translating. I think I had about 24,000 words at the end of that process. And then it was kind of, I suppose, uh, deciding on a structure, deciding what we could use. I mean, I wanted to use everything, but it was, it was not possible. And I think that took me maybe... Two and a half days, really, to write and be confident with. Needed a lot of good editing from from our team at the Athletic as well. But yeah, I mean, it was, I suppose yeah. So maybe what two and a half weeks, maybe really to to put that put that all together. But yeah, very very pleased with it. I think um, it's not often that you get access um, to a, a club of that stature which is so kind of wide-ranging. Usually they like to keep a lot of people in the shadows, like, for example, the chief scout, Joffrey Moncada. But yeah, all those um, cotaleta milaneses that I bought, uh, one of my, my friends who works there uh, over the last year certainly paid off. 
Well, it's a magnificent piece. Uh, if you're listening and you haven't read it, then press pause on this and go and read James Horncastle's piece on The Athletic, Inside AC Milan, Waking a Sleeping Giant. It's gone down brilliantly well since it was published. And you can get a £1 a month subscription at the moment if you head to theathletic.com slash zonal marking. If you sign up today, you will get that fantastic, ridiculous offer uh, of a £1 a month subscription. Now, let's talk AC Milan, one of the most recognisable clubs in world football, for sure. And for a long time, one of its most successful, uh, the second most successful side in uh, the European Cup, the Champions League, seven-time winners, of course, behind Real Madrid, some way behind Real Madrid at this stage. Uh, And also, and this is what we like to talk about on this podcast, from a tactical perspective, one of the most iconic clubs, perhaps, over modern football's era, whose systems and style of play were often lauded as groundbreaking and innovative. So before we talk about the downfall and the rebuild, let's remind ourselves and fill in any youngsters listening, perhaps, about those great Milan sides from from yesteryear. We'll rattle through four Milan managers, uh, and I'd love to hear from you guys about basically the key features of these successful teams, tactically or otherwise. Uh, We'll start with you, James, on Nereo Rocco's Milan team in the 60s and early 70s. It was a period of success for the club. Uh, What was special about this side under Rocco? Well, lots of things. Um, It was the first Italian side to win the European Cup um, and really kind of started the dynasty um, that we talk about in uh, the piece uh, with Cesare Maldini, the father of Paolo, um, being captain of that side at Wembley. Um, and just so many great players um, in that side as well. Gianni Rivera, the first Italian player to win the Ballon d'Or. A lot of the players in that team or in Rocco's teams uh, in particular went on to become really influential coaches. Um, the likes of Giovanni Trapattoni, uh, later on Nevio Scala, Albertino Bigon, all these kind of players, Gigi Radice. Um, who would uh, either win league titles or cups in Europe and domestic. But yeah, I mean, I I suppose that team is is really associated with uh, Milan, the city, uh, in terms of starting it on its way to becoming, you know, one of the capitals of world football. that, That city is, after Madrid, the one that has had the most European cups. I mean, it's 10 in total, um, seven at Milan, three with Inter. Real Madrid have all of the, <laughs> all of the cups in, uh, in Madrid. Uh, Atleti have got to the final a few times, but haven't won one yet. But I suppose that Rocco side is really associated with Catinaccio, which is when Italian football found uh, a really distinctive identity for itself, which has proven pretty resistant culturally. Um, over the years and I think that will probably be why we get onto another of uh, Milan's coaches because he was to take it in the complete other direction. <laughs> there we go. Uh, Michael, you have studied uh, tactics over the last, well, 150, 100 years and Arago Saki's name always crops up. He was in charge of a magnificent Milan side uh, in the late 80s and the early 90s. What was God, I'm going to use a terrible modern phrase here. What was Saki ball when it came to <laughs> Milan and this period? Unforgivable, oh Ali. Yeah, that's <laughs> oh terrible. Um, well, yeah, I mean, as, as James hints out there, he, he pretty much overhauled Italy's obsession with Catanaccio, which was, you know, traditionally defensive football with a sweeper and, and usually a star number 10, a Trecortista going forward. I mean, Saki was different. He liked a bold approach in terms of playing high up the pitch with a flat defence, but 
few individualistic players. He had stars. He had Van Basten, Rijkaard and, and Hullet, but they always had to fit very strictly into the system, which was always 4-4-2. And it really, I mean, it divided Italy. The traditionalists hated, hated it, but it, it revolutionised European football. It defined the modern Milan. It defined really the modern style of play that we come to associate with European football with a flat defence and playing high up the pitch with an offside trap. And yeah, it was, uh, you know, a relatively short period of time and, and Saki never really succeeded elsewhere. He wasn't too successful with the Italian national side, but yeah, you always associate him with, with Milan and also laid, uh, laid the groundwork for the Capello side as well. I mean, when I look at some of the sort of key philosophies of uh, of Saki's style of play, rather, I mean, words like aggressive high pressing system, uh, high defensive line, uh, zonal marking, there are plenty of things that we see reflected in the modern game that I dare say were hugely influenced by uh, Saki at that time. James, a Saki disciple also oversaw a, a brilliant period for Milan. Fabio Capello, of course, latterly England manager, among other posts. What characterised Capello's Milan team? How different to, to Saki's style was it? Well, Capello is one of those managers a little bit like uh, Marcello Lippi, who um, saw both sides of uh, Italian football. You know, as a player, he he grew up playing the kind of football um, that uh, was common under Nereo Rocco. Um, and was predominantly, as, as, as Michael was saying, with a sweeper and you man mark, you don't leave your positions, you keep a kind of quite rigid shape. But he also, whilst studying the game and working in, in you know, Berlusconi's kind of galaxy of, of, of companies, got to see what Saki was doing and the zonal marking concepts that um, we've, we've just touched on as well. So I think he had the benefit of being part of the the old school and the new school at the same time, and that was that was really interesting um, seeing how his Milan side evolved. Um, because for a time after he replaced Saki, they obviously go on this tremendous unbeaten run, which is is, is still the the record in Serie A. It's more than fifty games, um, and they were you know sort of scoring goals for fun, sixty five goals, top scorers that season in a thirty in an eighteen team league, and then. The other year, they completely flip-reversed it. Um, yeah, 93-94. <laughs> <laughs> um, they, they won the league scoring just 36 goals in 34 games and conceded only 15. Um, and, you know, that was very much the year when they signed Desailly and basically plonked Desailly, a centre-back, in front of the defence. And uh, it's just very difficult to break through. So Capello, you know, as I mentioned at the top, was someone who... Could do it both ways, um, really, and really was able to benefit from being a player and a manager as Italian football went through this kind of this transition, which I wouldn't say was you know, a complete overhaul. You know, at the same time, Saki was very much an iconoclast. He was cutting against the grain, um, and there were just him and a few other acolytes like Zenek Zemin, for example. But gradually, these ideas seeped into the kind of Italian football gene pool and became. Yeah, some parts of it came part of Capello. And I think we're now really seeing a, a sort of generation of players who've become managers who were players in Saki's era and are introducing those concepts more, more wide, in a more wide-ranging way. Michael, what do you make of Capello's career? Slight tangent, but essentially took his first job with Milan. Well, it was June 1991, so not quite 30 years, but but let's call it 30 years because it works quite neatly. Uh, in, in 15 years from 91 to 96, he managed Milan, Real Madrid, Milan, 
Roma for a long time and Juventus as well. And in 14 years since, he had that stint with Real Madrid and then with England and Russia and Jiangsu Suning in China. Uh, how do you sort of reflect on Capello's career after what an amazing, that, that incredible start that he had as Milan manager? Well, I think my favourite thing about Capello was, was how defensive he was considered when he went to Spain. So he went to Real Madrid for 96-97, won the league and was sacked because his football was too defensive. <laughs> 2006, reappointed at Real Madrid, one season, won the league, sacked because his football was too defensive. <laughs> so, um, yeah, there's a pattern there. I mean, I, I, I think James would echo what I say here when, uh, I mean, my favourite Capello sub was the Roma side that won the league in 2001 mm. um, with Totti behind Batistuta and Montello Del Vecchio and then Cafu and Condola as the wing-backs. I mean, yeah, broadly speaking, you look at his career, he liked structure, he liked everyone fitting into a system. But uh, I think that Roma experience showed that, you know, when you had a player like Francesco Totti, he was happy to build the side around them and, and created, I think, one of the best teams I've ever seen, actually. So, yeah, probably a slight disappointment in his later years with England and Russia and his experience in China, I don't know much about, to be honest. Um, <laughs> but certainly in the 90s and the early 2000s, he was probably the most revered manager in European football. Another manager with uh, an incredible career, just if you look at the list of names of clubs he's managed, is Carlo Ancelotti and his Milan side between, let's say, 2002 and 2008. I mean, so many listeners will have such fond memories of this side and packed with big names as well. Michael, uh, what was the standout personality trait of, of Ancelotti's Milan when we're talking tactically. Yeah, first I should say the one Serie A winning manager we've missed out here is Zaccaroni, uh, who we've done a podcast about before. With we've done a whole episode on yeah, Zaccaroni's so Milan. You're welcome to go back and listen to that if you missed that one. Um, Ancelotti, I mean, Ancelotti was very interesting because he was a player under Sacchi and then his assistant for the Italian national side. Um, and when he first started out, he was considered you know, uh, a complete disciple of Saki. I'd say by the time he got to Milan, he was a different manager. He'd been a little bit influenced by what happened at Juventus with with uh, where he had Zidane. He gave Zidane a free role and he started to believe more in indulging individuals. And at Milan, rather than kind of trying to desperately fit in stars into a 4-4-2, he really based his, his side around, you know, playing his best players wherever they like to really. And that meant sometimes he had Pirlo and Seydorf and... Rui Costa and Kaká in the same side, usually only four of them in a, in a kind of diamond midfield. But yeah, it was, I mean, there were some similarities to the Saki side. They were defending high up the pitch generally in a zonal system. They didn't play with great width. You know, it was it was always a diamond with the width only coming from the fullbacks. But I think, yeah, by that point, Ancelotti had become quite a different manager to uh, to the one we expected when he was assistant to Saki. So those are the good times. And Given how good so many of those periods were for, for Milan, I think, you know, it's a shame that I don't edit this podcast in some ways because this is where I would probably add the record scratch sound effect uh, because that is the past. And now in the present, 2020, as we are 10 years since Milan's last Scudetto, they've been absent from the Champions League. Uh, since 2014. So the next section of the pod, I'm afraid, has to be on something of a downfall. And James, you touched on this in your piece. There's a few factors at play that I'd like to work through. 
One of them which you, you can't really get away with is financial challenges faced by Milan and well, a lot of sides in Italian football and Serie A compared to uh, other nations such as uh, England, of course, and the Premier League. Uh, exactly what were the or have been the financial challenges for Milan that have contributed to this barren spell? Well, I think you have to consider them in the context of Italian football as a whole. Um, really, since 2006, when Italy won the World Cup, uh, they're kind of high watermark. And you must, you have to say, probably the beginning of the end into for a, for a golden generation of players, um, which Milan in particular were able to draw on for a little bit longer. Um, yeah, even looking back at their last title winning team, 2010-11 under Max Allegri, yeah, that was still able to call on the likes of Alessandro Nesta, the likes of Pippo Inzaghi, Gattuso, Pirlo, um, players had really formed part of that Lippi's World Cup winning side. Uh, but I think 2006 is a turning point for a lot of reasons. Um, you know, if you look at the Deloitte Money League from that time, the gap between Milan and the uh, richest clubs in terms of their revenue was only around 50 million. And I think 2006 is significant because that's when, for example, the Bundesliga clubs, they completely overhaul their stadia um, to modern football purpose-built grounds, which they can make quite a lot of money from. Premier League in that time was about to go to the next level in terms of its the amount of TV money that they could get gather around the world. Because you know, this is one of the kind of quite interesting things, I suppose, about that period is Milan were the Italian side that reached what three finals between 03, 05, and 07. But that that's kind of a period that we associate, I would I would say, with Premier League teams doing really well um, as well in that competition. It, it sort of becomes a bit of a, a Premier League La Liga decade, if you like, and. On the back of that success, the Premier League is able to go out and sell TV rights on on on, on very favourable terms. And then I, th I suppose the, you also have at the, at the second half of that decade the emergence of players like Ronaldo, the emergence of players like Lionel Messi who go to Spain and supplement this incredible Spanish generation, which become these kind of iconic clubs, I suppose. And in a way that us, Barcelona have always been, but Barcelona becomes became so much more significant and so much more relevant, I think, in that time on the Pep Guardiola in the way that I suppose Milan was at the beginning of the 90s as a tra trailblazing, tactically innovative um, side that everyone around the world wanted to watch. But I mean, within Serie A, you have the scandal of, uh, of, of Calciopoli. You have the fact that they haven't invested in infrastructure. You know, that is going back to what I was saying about Stadia, but it's also about their youth academies in terms of you know bringing bringing players through you know they they spent almost everything they earned on retaining those absolute global superstars that we all kind of fell in love with in the late 90s and, and early 2000s without kind of basically thinking you know what we should maybe uh, look at how we can develop the next generation and then you have these family owners uh, Silvio Berlusconi at Milan who becomes mired in scandal uh, basically Milan was not run as a business. It was an indulgence. So uh, yeah, they weren't making uh, much money, certainly in terms of what they were paying their superstars. And their family basically said, look, you know, we've got to, we've, we've, we've got to kind of call it a day with this. They couldn't compete with sovereign wealth funds coming into, into the European game. And you might say that in, in hindsight, the teams that have replaced Milan and Inter uh, in the Champions League are Manchester City and Paris Saint-Germain because because of that they have gone about the spending that those two clubs used to used to do. So I think it's a, it's kind of a confluence of all those things that made it very difficult for for Milan to to stay competitive. They could have done with better manager. Uh, <laughs> 
better management, more far-sighted management. But instead, I think this is this is one of those cautionary tales of yeah, if you let it slip, it, it, it can very quickly get away from you. And I think Italian clubs just aren't protected in the way that Premier League clubs are by being in a league, which just by dint of geography, you know, the bottom club in the Premier League will make as much, if not close to, um, what a Juventus will make in TV mm. money. You know, it's, it's, it's absolutely ludicrous. Wouldn't it be great if every clothing store you shopped at had only your size, the styles you like, and everything at the price you want? Well, Stitch Fix is a company focused on doing just that. It's an online personal styling company that makes getting the clothes you love simple. It's a completely different way to shop and it's all about you. To get started, go to stitchfix.co.uk slash zonal to set up your profile and they'll deliver great looks personalised just for you. You'll pay a £10 styling fee for each fix, which is credited towards anything you keep. You can schedule at any time with no subscription. Delivery and returns are completely free and easy, so you can always send back items that aren't right for you. Get started with Stitch Fix today by going to stitchfix.co.uk forward slash zonal right now. And make sure you use our show name to support our podcast. Michael, let's go through some of the mistakes made, perhaps from a footballing perspective and a, a football strategy perspective. Because uh, you know, with those financial challenges that Serie A has faced, sort of accepted, you still look at Italian football and their performances within just Italian football. And you know, aside from Juventus, even clubs like Napoli and Atalanta and Roma and Lazio and of course Inter have performed a lot better than AC Milan over the last five or six years. So um, when you look at how it's gone for them on the pitch over the last five or six years, let's say, uh, what what's been missing? What have they done wrong? What do you put it down to? Yeah, a couple of things. I mean, personally, I think really their problems over the last decade stem from the fact that they had an ageing side for so long leading up to about 2011 was their last title and they ended up losing a great generation of players almost all at once you know the likes of Nesta in particular I think of as a as a particularly uh, bad loss but also Pirlo and Gattuso and Inzaghi and there were lots of other players and I, basically I think one issue is I don't think their squad has ever really recovered from that the other issue is they've appointed some well they've made some bad appointments I think they've often tried to you know, they clearly want a kind of Milan philosophy. And you look at the appointments, they've appointed a lot of former players. I mean, in the last decades alone, there's been Leonardo, Seydorf, Inzaghi, Brocchi and Gattuso, some of them only on a temporary basis. But some of those, I mean, in hindsight, Leonardo seemed like he didn't even really particularly want to become a manager. I thought that was a particularly strange one. Then he ended up at Inter as well, which was even stranger. I mean, I think when you look at the, the managers who have had success, with Ancelotti in, in the in the uh, mid two thousands, and Allegri, who I think did quite a, a well, a very good job with a, a squad that was on its last legs. They had managerial experience before. You know, Ancelotti had been at Parma and Juventus. Allegri had done a a promising job with Cagliari, although I think it was you know actually a very good appointment when he came in. And I guess they, they've they've now swung more towards going for a manager who isn't just promoted from the Primavera, someone who has uh, performed well elsewhere and broadly look to be going in the right direction now. Let's take a look at the current squad then, because uh, as you mentioned there, it, the, the the rebuilding process 
probably could and should have started quite a while ago and, and perhaps they haven't made the right moves in a recruitment sense to to ever end up with a, a squad ready to challenge again in Serie A and in European competition. Michael, when you take a look at Milan's current squad, what stands out for you? I mean, we, we looked at squad depth last week, so I've got that very much in the forefront of my mind. And, you know, it is a, it's a young squad in the most part, but with some very key and notable bringers of experience, for want of a better phrase. Yeah, like you say, I mean, from uh, from last week, I'm kind of just looking, accustomed to looking at a player's age um, as much as their ability after the way we uh, spoke about Premier League squads. And certainly the signings from uh, from this summer with Rebic and Krunic and Rafael Liao and Leo Duarte, all 25 or under, they certainly look to be building for the long term. They also have... You know, some players who are already there who are coming into their peak. I mean, Ben Acer, Teo Hernandez, who's been excellent at left back. And, and perhaps most obviously Donnarumma in goal, who seems to have been there forever and yet is still what, 22. Could be about 10 years away from his peak. Who knows? I think the, the issue is, I mean, looking at their first game, the 2-0 victory over Bologna, the two goals came from Ibrahimovic, who is 39 this week. And is still an absolutely extraordinary player. And his goal-scoring record has remained pretty consistent throughout his 30s. But I do think the problem with Ibrahimovic is not just that, you know, he's getting on and you don't necessarily want to be depending on him. But when you have Ibrahimovic in your team, and everyone over the years has has found this from, from Inter to Barcelona to Milan in his first spell, everything becomes based around him because he's so good. He's so dominant. I think he's he wants to be involved in build-up play, maybe less so than before. And also because he's so good in the air, I think teams tend to end up almost just flinging the ball into the box a little bit too quickly. And that's how Milan's first goal came on, on Saturday, across from Hernandez and a, a classic header from Ibrahimovic. It's working for them this season, but at some point, of course, they will have to get in another centre-forward, a younger centre-forward, who probably won't have all of Ibrahimovic's qualities. And I think that transition... You know, the post-Ibrahimovic uh, shift is often very difficult for clubs. Yeah, it's interesting because, yeah, they started, if you like, this revolution in their recruitment program already last summer. Yeah, Michael alluded to, to some of the guys that they brought in. And, yeah, they went very young um, in, in, in last summer's transfer window. I think Rebic was the oldest player that they signed and he was 25 at the time. And I don't think that reflected uh, there being a kind of anti-experience faction on the, re- the the transfer committee that they have there, you know, because ultimately they went into the market and corrected that in January when they signed um, Zlatan and Simon Kier. And I think what's been really fascinating to follow over the last six months is how the young players have kind of grown around Zlatan. Um, and I spoke to Ben Asser, uh, maybe at the end of last season. And he said that uh, Zlatan has just taken the pressure off off all of us because he just dominates, uh, yeah, not just games, but um, yeah, he, he, he got, grabs people's attention. And that just allows us to, 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 to focus on what we're doing, have a little bit more time space on the ball as well. And yeah, Maldini reiterates this in the piece, is that they have really benefited from Zlatan's competitiveness in training competitiveness in all aspects of his kind of professional life it's it's kind of again focus their minds it ensures that they're they're all there listening paying attention and that intangible aspect has been kind of as as important as the goals but i think i think what they want to see over the next next season really is is rebic for example he can play center forward 
if needed to. And also Rafael Leal, who was, I think, their most expensive signing last summer from Lille. And towards the end of, of, of the last campaign, he started to make a more consistent impact from the bench. But I think they want to see him start delivering on the potential he showed for kind of Portugal's under-21s, either from out wide and then, I think, evolve into, into a centre-forward. So I, th- I think that's the, that's the thinking at, uh, at Milan going into this season. And a fair few players brought in this summer, James, but we have to talk about Sandro Tonali because we've done essentially a whole podcast on him <laughs> and what he represents, the, the group of young Italian midfield players that he represents, and also, of course, uh, quashing any claims that he is the next Pirlo just because he has lovely long hair and silken hair. But um, he's the big signing You'd say for, for Milan this summer, he's he's got a fair amount of competition in the centre of the park, though, doesn't he? I mean, how did his transfer come about? Is that considered a, a real coup for, for Milan? Yeah, huge coup. Because, yeah, for the last six months, really, been told that uh, he would be going to Inter. Um, and so for, for this to kind of change almost over overnight, really, was uh, really well received from Milan fans. And I think it's, it's pro- of all the signings that have been made this summer in Serie A, I think it's the one that has got the best press just because of Tonali's background. You know, he is a Milan fan. Yeah, he wears the number eight because he... He grew up idolizing Rino Gattuso and he actually phoned Gattuso, even though Gattuso is now the coach of Napoli, to say, look, are you okay with me taking your number eight shirt? <laughs> um, and I think the reason why they've, they've signed him is not only because he's, a, he's, a, he's one of the brightest talents in, in, in Italian football, but also because yeah, they, uh, they're playing in the Europa League. Um, we were recording this, what, the day after that they played Bodo Glimt, the Norwegian, yeah, tactically innovative, super dominant, uh, influential side of the uh, elite. Serian, I think that's what they call the Norwegian league, uh, where they 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 played what eighteen games, won sixteen, drawn two, and I suppose when you're going through this crazy Europa League preliminary process with a then view to playing another four hundred games to get to the final, you need as, as as many players as you can get, particularly in midfield, and I think. Uh, finding someone who can play in, in, in the two, either with Kessie or with Benasser, or even then evolve into a three uh, with Kessie, Benasser and Tonali as well. Then I think that gives bodies to, to the coach alternatives and it gives gives a bit of more tactical flexibility as well. I expect they'll sign another midfield player before the window's done. Yeah, plenty of options for Pioli in that midfield area, plenty of different types of, of midfield player as well. Michael mentioned that in this last, well, essentially since Allegri left in, in 2014, a lot of the managers that they've hired have been big names in terms of their playing career, um, perhaps hired off the back of that more so than, than anything they had done in their managerial career. So is it is something of a, a change of strategy to hire Pioli uh, in 2019 last year. Uh, can, can you tell me a bit more about Pioli's background and his reputation within the Italian game? Yeah, well, I mean, let's back up first and talk about the the recruit the the managers that they appointed over the last decade, because I think it is it is key to understand that. Yeah, you know, I think one of the reasons that Berlusconi did that was because it would work with Capello in 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 the past, for example, and also I think it reflected where they were in their kind of ownership cycle. Um, you know, resources were were not what they once were. I think always promoting the guy from the under-19s was, was A, a way of satisfying the fans because it's like, oh, look, Pippo Inzaghi's our manager. Amazing. And it was cheap as well. And I, I think, yeah, that kind of 
was indicative of the kind of shifting uh, kind of priorities that um, was at the club at the time. It has since been through, it went through three owners in three different years. And that, again, is key to understanding why Milan got to where they are because, you know, in the final year of, of Berlusconi, they spent a huge amount of money um, thinking that the club was going to get take o- taken over by this guy, B. Taishal Bol from Thailand. And then basically that takeover never happened. He then sold the club to this uh, mysterious Chinese entrepreneur called Li Yonghong. He and his executive team spent an absolute fortune without selling any players. So the net spend was massive. And then the club almost went bust. And they were left, the, the, the hedge fund that basically repossessed the club were left with, with all these kind of legacy contracts, these huge contracts that they couldn't shift. And yeah, it's, it was a very difficult thing to turn around. So yeah, that is one of the reasons why they've gone much younger. Um, they've tried to to, to, to to buy potential rather than established talent, you know, with, with one or two exceptions, Latin being one of them. And in Pioli, you know, when they brought him in to replace Marco Giampaolo last October, the thinking there was that he has a good background in developing young players. That's one of the things, particularly with the Fiorentina side that he had coached. Um, he sort of brought through the likes of uh, Federico Chiesa. I think that was the youngest team in, in Serie A when he was in charge of it. Milan are now the youngest team in Serie A. And he, he plays, I would say, a very modern style of football. I mean, when I spoke to him for this piece, I, I kind of said, look, you know, there are some shades of kind of what we see in the Bundesliga in your uh, in your style, which is very vertical, very quick transitions. But he, again, was very keen to kind of uh, root himself in, in, in Italian football, which is, you know, you are a tailor, you cut your cloth depending on who you are tailoring an outfit for. You know, it depends on the materials that you've got. And we work in a, in a, in the most diverse, most tactically complicated league, um, that there is in terms of, you know, some people play a back three, some people play with a back four, some people mark zone, mark man, some people play counterattacking, some people play possession dominated. You have to change all the time. And I think, I suppose his experience within that, but being part of a, a new school of coaching was, was one of the reasons why they elected to go with him from what the, the two or three other candidates that they they uh, they interviewed under Pioli Michael how would you how would you describe this Milan side tactically i mean it seems a little unfair to uh, even try and, and compare him or measure him against some of the most iconic tacticians of all time that we discussed earlier. So uh, how, how would you how would you analyse this Milan side under Pioli? How do they play? Yeah, I like the way they play. I think they feel quite modern. They play out from the back well. I think there's an intention to press, which at times they do well. At times in that game against Bologna, I think they got played through a little bit too easily. Theo Hernandez has is, is played a very advanced role down the left. I think it's kind of in keeping with a lot of top clubs in Europe at the moment now and in the way that Milan almost shift from a, a back four to a back three or vice versa when they lose the ball. Yeah, do it with, with a fullback really pushing on very high and the other one tucking inside. I mean, that has led some people to say that Pioli's system is almost like a 3-2-2-3 rather than 4-2-3-1 or 4-3-3, which I think is maybe slightly uh, ambitious in, in their dictation of that uh, that formation. But yeah, it goes to show that they are playing, I think, a more progressive style of football than they have over the last few years. And uh, like I say, for me, the, the real question mark is just what they're doing in the final third and how much they will depend on Ibrahimovic who, uh, like I say, just has a habit of the ball's like a magnet to his feet. He, he does seem to attract all the all the passes through the lines, all the crosses, just everything. So I think just diversifying and making sure that 
they're not completely based around him. As, dif- as difficult as it is when he scores so many goals is probably the key thing. Harry's was founded by Jeff and Andy, two ordinary guys who were sick and tired of overpriced razors. Jeff and Andy knew there was only one way to ensure quality, so they bought their own factory. And now, by taking less profit, Harry's offers great quality products for a fair price. Their amazing quality blades are now almost half the price of the leading five-blade brand. Harry's trial set includes everything you need for a close, comfortable shave. Weighted ergonomic handle, check. Five precision-engineered blades, check. A rich, lathering shave gel and a travel blade cover as well. As a listener of Zonal Marking, you can start shaving with Harry's today by claiming your trial set for just £3.95. Support this podcast and get your set delivered to you, including a razor handle, five blade cartridge, foaming shave gel and travel blade cover by going to harrys.com forward slash zonal right now. That's harrys.com forward slash zonal. And James, something major happening off the field over the next few years, of course, is, is the new stadium. I think many traditionalists will be will be very sad to see the San Siro left behind. Um, is this quite a handy metaphor for a rebuild of the club as well? I mean, it's it's obviously shared with Inter Milan as well, so it's a huge project. Uh, but what's the balance that you're finding between being sad to see the San Siro left behind and, and excited about this new project, which you were told all about uh, for your piece? Look, I love going to San Siro. I think it is my favorite place I think to go and watch football yeah there's there's nothing quite like coming out of the metro and you know sort of seeing this space station which has just been you know, sort of planted um, in this in this neighborhood in Milan it's just so iconic and reminiscent of kind of uh, you know what the games we saw at Italia 90 I, I suppose and, and 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 the real heyday of Italian football um, in in the 90s I think it is essential. I think it's it's you, you have to kind of put sentimentality to one side. I think if our listeners want to go, they still got a, a good chance of, of of seeing a football at San Siro for a few more years yet, because yeah, the plans to build on a site adjacent to it, you know, they want to you know play at San Siro whilst the, the 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 new stadium is being constructed. But you know, as I said, I think you know Italian football. One of the reasons why it has fallen behind, and Gazidis talks about this in in the piece, is that there is a seventy million revenue gap really between the the Milan clubs and you know what your kind of top Spanish sides and and top Premier League sides are making from their stadium. And in fact, if you look at the actual Deloitte Money League, it's more than that, particularly at Barcelona and, and Real Madrid. So I think, you know, if we want to see Milan to be competitive, um, then they need that 70 million extra a year to be able to spend on, on on players. And also, you know, I think what is a very persuasive argument is that if any if anyone who's been to San Siro, or, you know, if, 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 if in my experience as a reporter going to cover games there, you know, the facilities aren't aren't what they could be. And um, you know, in terms of you know making the stadium more accessible to women, children, disabled people from all. Uh, all walks of life yeah that stadium needs rebuilding and it's been there since 1925 and it's kind of 
it's kind of been renovated here and there. But even the update for the recent Champions League final between Real Madrid and Atletico Madrid doesn't change the fact that there is a need in that city for a, for a new stadium. And one that reflects the kind of the drive that that city has been on really for the last five years because it's a great city to visit. I mean, yeah, the skyline has completely changed. There are some amazing pieces of architecture in in Milan now, and you know, I think in that in in, in that context now, San Siro. You know, as much as I love it, does does look outdated. Certainly, if you know anyone who's been to Spurs' stadium, <laughs> and you know, if you were to do a kind of uh, home and away leg between uh, Spurs and Inter or Milan, you, you know, the, the the difference is pronounced. Even though there are there are things to love about both of those stadiums, but yeah, plans for a sixty thousand stadium, and you know, I think because of that local context where we've seen so much urban regeneration. Um, there's reasons to be optimistic that it will happen, which you know is something that I don't think um, Italian football fans are kind of used to hearing because <laughs> yeah, you know, because of the red tape, because of for example the fact that Rome have been trying to build a stadium for the last ten years and you know have yet been able to put a spade in the ground. Um, I think there are, there are real reasons to believe that since there will be a new um, a new San Siro. Um, and look, it's great that it'll be more or less on the same site um, in the same way that Spurs' stadium is on the same site as well. So, yeah, um, get to San Siro while you can is what I can say because it uh, it's, it's just a, it's, it's a mythical place. Fantastic. Let's do a trip, Coxie, when we can. I think that's a good idea. We'll do a pod from there. Um, look, the, the piece ends on a positive note, both for the future of Milan and the way that they appear to be modernising as a club, but also uh, Serie A as a whole, uh, the way that it is also modernising its its operations. Uh, and of course, with the developments over the last few years of some, well, some quite strong investment uh, from overseas, from private equity groups. And there is a, a, a sense of optimism around Italian football at the moment, which is really exciting. Michael, you've always had a real soft spot for Serie A. And, and he loves Ita- it. He loves and, it. And Can't Italian, get enough. And Italian football. Um, do you, are you excited about the next few years? Do you think it's in a, a good place to grow? I know we've been talking about Milan today, but of course there's a, a, a rich tapestry in Serie A at the moment. Plenty of teams to be excited about. Yeah, I think so. I, I think probably more than other leagues, there's actually, like you say, a, a decent strength and depth. I mean, we're talking about Milan today. They are, I think, quite exciting ahead of this uh, campaign. And yet they're the fifth biggest or fifth best side in Serie A, you would think, behind Juve, Inter, Atalanta and Napoli. Um, and Lazio and Roma are often kind of in the background, promising to do things, Fiorentina as well. So, yeah, I mean, when Serie A was at its best, it was at its best, not just because it had you know, often the best team in Europe, but it had seven teams who could all challenge for the league. I think the slight sad situation is like, is is that like in other major European leagues, it's completely dominated by one club at the moment, by Juventus, who are going for 10 in a row. If you take them out of it, I think it's a really competitive league and interesting situation. And uh, like you say, I'm, I'm a big fan of Syria and uh, I hope it returns to uh, its days of, of prominence because it feels like it's been a little bit in the background the last few years a little bit like Milan themselves plenty of optimism uh, we finished the pod on a high great news if you happen to cover uh, Italian football for the athletic as you do James so it's all smiles at the end of this pod and what I'm hoping to coax out of you while we're in such a good mood it is maybe a little hint of, of what we can expect from you over the next few weeks on site. I dare say there will be fans of Italian clubs who have seen your deep dive on Milan and wondered whether their club might be next up for a, <laughs> for a Horncastle special. 
Or maybe not something as deep as the deepest of deep dives um, into, into Milan. But um, we'll have a, an interview with the new owner of a club that a lot of people are very fond of, uh, which is Parma, um, coming up. They've just seen uh, the club taken over by a, an American businessman called Carl Krauss. We got some time with him uh, over the last week as he basically flew in, um, had full immersion into what was going on at Parma just in time for the start of the new season. So, um, yeah, stay across the app, the site, uh, podcasts, everything, and you'll learn more about uh, what's going on, what the future holds for Parma. Brilliant. Well, thank you so much for, for talking us through this topic. You can read all of James's stuff, all of Michael's stuff as well, of course, and there's a, a brilliant piece from Coxie on Barcelona that has gone live as well. Theathletic.com forward slash zonal marking is where you will get a brilliant subscription offer. Take them up on it if you haven't already subscribed to The Athletic. We'll be back again next week. I'm off to go and do some research on Norwegian side Bodo Glimt uh, and looking forward to talking <laughs> uh, to taking down another topic uh, in, in the zonal marking style next week. Please join us then. Make sure you're subscribed and thanks so much much for listening.